Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert himself, Mr. Rick Pruce. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Lee. Rick, in addition to... You being in the studio, we have with us also in the studio one of our regular sponsors and good friends, Dr. Mark Williamson from the Lansing Veterinary Medical Center. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. And on the line, we have with us what has become an annual tradition and one of the bigger (laughs) treats that we have in the calendar year, and that is our guest from Purdue University, Dr. Alan Beck, who is the director of the Center of the Human-Animal Bond uh, at the Purdue Veterinary School. Welcome back to our show, Dr. Beck. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it is always our pleasure to have you because I will tell you there's few things in this life that make Rick Pruce as giddy as a schoolgirl. But talking to you about the topic of the human-animal bond is one of those topics. Well, my pleasure. It's one of my topics, too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a whole life process of, of the topic, you know. You, you, you have not avoided the topic for quite a long time. Uh, no, I got, no, pets have been very good to me. Yes. Yeah. Well, and why don't we begin, Dr. Beck, with having you explain for any of our listeners who have just emerged from the rock that they've been under and haven't heard of you or heard of any of our conversations, can you explain to the public what is the Center for the Human-Animal Bond. What the heck do you guys do there? What's your What's your mission in life? What's your shtick? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, as, as you know, I mean, university studies have been, for the longest time, sometimes it's called silo, you know, like, like everyone in their own little, uh, you know, container. Um, in fact, there's a very famous expression that... that uh, the world has problems, but universities have departments. Uh, <laughs> and one a role that centers have played is a way of being an interdisciplinary effort, either for education or, or research. Uh, and one very obvious need for interdisciplinary uh, studies are our relationship with animals, because uh, it, they play both wild animals and, and, and companion and pet animals and, and, and food and, and research animals, they play roles that uh, overlap with, with so many uh, aspects of, of human activity. Uh, I mean, 60-plus percent of all households have a companion animal, which is probably one of the more you know, common uh, uh, activities. So the human, the center was was a way for people in in a variety of different ways, but whose uh, research interests and teaching interests included some interaction uh, with with animals as well, whether it be in education or child development, uh, public health, obviously, uh, veterinary medicine, uh, even sociology. So it was to really to try to uh, bridge that gap and have a sort of a a common for the most part, virtual center that we could use to get together, to get studies, to do uh, teaching efforts. And it really is to just better understand the many roles that animals play uh, in our lives. And to some extent, uh, 
nobody, well, less people are willing to listen if it doesn't have some kind of scientific evidence associated with that. Can you comment a little bit about the value of this information we're accumulating and how it's at least supposed to work as far as changing kind of our ethos on, on pet keeping? Well, sure. I mean, because animals are so pervasive, uh, for the most part, scientifically, they've been ignored. Uh, but it, it's so much part of our society that there's always been a lot of uh, mythology and beliefs. Some of the beliefs are even true, but some of them aren't. Uh, it's been very much part of our lives. I mean, so it was really uh, over the last really 30 years, it became apparent that at least some of the observations uh, especially where health is concerned, uh, are very real and, and useful. And much of my work now, we could talk about that, is, is why that's the, the, the case, as opposed to just explaining it, their events. Um, and so that is, is sort of what we're trying to do. I, I think our, our dedication to animals sort of predates any kind of logical or scientific reason for our relationship with animals. Uh, almost every culture, if not at least every culture we were able to find, uh, has some kind of companion animal pattern of behavior, uh, has, a, has a word for pets, and so on. So we know, we know it predates and it's cross-cultural, uh, so it's really trying to better understand it, um, especially since there's some really good reasons to do it uh, that have strong and sometimes even economically positive reasons to do these things. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, let's, you know, what are the reasons for doing it? What are the, like the mere, you know, like if you were to, you know, in a cocktail uh, setting and you're, you're talking to somebody that's kind of like uh, not really a pet keeper or not one that really even, you know, how many times have you been in a room and said, well, I don't really, um, I, what do they usually say? They're like, I don't really like pets or, or right. I'm not an animal person is what they'll commonly say. But I have um, enough money to be a benefactor. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, might you, what might you tell them? <laughs> well, you know, actually, that's a very good approach. Uh, you know what? I, I was just thinking of it. I would ask them to, what they think about their relationship with people. And we would start talking about how important other people are to our lives. And in terms of uh, how we feel better in the presence of uh, people, how we, we, the reasons we talk to people, and we have an incredible commitment for communication between each other. If you look at all what's going on with, with all the ways we now uh, talk, <laughs> uh, what, some of the activities we do with each other to, to sort of enjoy the present, um, the important social contact. And then we say, well, all this is called, you know, social support theory that we know that people who don't have good relationships with, with other people don't do well. And it's not too hard to convince someone that social support really plays a major role for a social animal like human beings. And then it's just a very simple reminder that while social support is wonderful, it's nice if we could also find it a little bit on demand or when it's a little less available temporarily, uh, and that many of the behaviors that we relation that we do with our companion animals in, in with all the animals, but just taking different aspects of it, uh, really capture much of the same social support. So uh, we like talking. Well, we talk to our pets. We think we're not, and it's not idle talk. We believe that the animals, especially dogs, cats, and, and horses, 
really at least understand some of the the feelings you're sharing, if not the words. Uh, I mean, we we're not the only ones who found that better than 97% of people talk to dogs to their dogs and cats. Well, the other 3% lied, by the way. Everybody talks <laughs> to their dogs and cats. I, I, I think I poked a topic that we need to continue. Yeah. Uh, but what we got to do is take a break. Yeah, we, sure. we do. And for some of us who do believe Mr. Ed actually did speak, we will continue and have that conversation with Dr. Alan Beck, who is the director of the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University's Vet School. And we'll We'll be back right after the break on the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Hey, got some ideas for a show? Questions? Maybe suggestions? Just email us, mmpets at 1320WILS.com or message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash mmpets. You know that ridiculous way pet owners talk to their animals? Who's my boy? You want a potty for daddy? Yeah, he's the best dog in the world. <laughs> yeah, you won't hear any of that here. <laughs> this is the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on more compelling talk radio, 1320 WILS. We're back here with the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we're talking this morning with Dr. Alan Beck, who is the director of the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University Veterinary School, and assisting me with the questioning this morning, besides Rick Pruce, is Dr. Mark Williamson from the Lansing Veterinary Medical Center. And Dr. Beck, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the human-animal bond and just a little bit of background on it. Can you explain some of the benefits that's coming from some of the research that you're doing? How has the whole notion of, for example, service dogs or rescue dogs or just the whole concept of utilizing animals to assist human beings, how has that I almost want to use the word uh, revolution, but it's more of an evolution. How has that taken place and why? Well, I think we over the, the years, we, we have such a, a good relationship, especially with, with dogs, who there's a lot of really good communication between the two that we've learned to also take advantage in a nice way, utilize, probably would be a better word, uh, some of the, uh, the natural interests and skills of dogs. Uh, for instance, dogs are amazingly good observers uh, of, of observing the whole environment and also like working and interacting with uh, people. It, just as we consider the, the dog part of the family, they consider us part of the pack. And so very early on, we learned that we could uh, have a dog actually uh, help observe things. And, you know, the seeing eye dog is just taking advantage of the fact that the animal wants to work with us and is, is a good observer. Uh, and so, and also an excellent learner uh, with, with very, you know, simple positive rewards. So we've had, we started with, with seeing eye dogs, and then it was very easy to uh, utilize some of the other advantages that, that dogs have, being, you know, in, incredibly great at smell, being able to distinguish and remember odors from uh, at very, very low concentration. 
we 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 soon developed uh, search and rescue dogs, uh, you know, bomb sniffing dogs, and more even recently, even uh, uh, pathological tissue smelling dogs. Uh, so uh, it's just taking advantage of of really much of the, our relationship with animals that we were doing in a, in a less formal, less you know, purposeful way. Uh, and uh, animals love playing. It's very easy to get a, a service dog to open windows or, you know, turn on lights as part of a, a play behavior. And so it's actually a humane thing to do both for the animal and, of course, to help the person. So we've learned to just better adva- take advantage of some of the natural behaviors and interests, uh, especially of dogs. And in some ways, we've now been using other animals for other purposes uh, in a positive way. So uh, that it's been a, you're right. It's a it's a nice cultural evolution. We've we've probably lived with dogs for a good sixteen to twenty thousand years, uh, and forever kept developing a relationship that was actually better for both. We, we've had two that uh, I think about on the show uh, in the past. One was a uh, poor a person that had uh, an affliction of uh, celiac disease, and they, they actually had a dog that could detect the gluten uh, in the the foods. And then the other one, uh, Lee will get a little humor out of this, it was just basically a poop-detecting dog that uh, <laughs> that could uh, spot E. coli issues associated with uh, wastewater. You know, wastewater runoff. So sure. truly amazing. Oh, yeah, and, and we were using dogs for... For, for exotic bacteria in hospitals, some uh, cancer uh, tissues. We're, we're learning. So once you realize you can, once you can identify something, uh, a target, it's really not very hard to train dogs to behave in a specific way when they in- encounter that target, that odor. And so you can now shape it to for everything from from uh, you know fecal contamination to uh, explosives. I, I think we've had this conversation before, but it's been maybe a year uh, or at least some time. Talk a little bit about uh, how do we, as a society, kind of evolve? Because there's two things that are going opposite direction of each other, and we've confronted this here as you know in our business, and that is. You know, there's there's value in having these pets, for instance, in the classroom, and there's values of having, let's say, an aquarium in a hospital, but there's also pressure and maybe concerns associated with having them in those same environments. Uh, what steps or what angles, what opportunities are there to kind of resolve some of those, I guess, social slash uh, physical uh, issues surrounding both the way people think about it and also the value associated with these pets being in those situations. I think part of it is to look for some reasonable balances. Uh, so while uh, animals, say, do belong uh, or can play a role, say, in, in hospital settings, especially for young people, uh, this doesn't mean that she should be everywhere. We we could uh, have you know separate areas. Obviously, you know, not when they're storing clothing or food. Uh, we should you know expect well-behaved, uh, healthy uh, animals. When we use uh, fish in in, in hospital settings, uh, you know, having some reasonable design so there is no 
uh, or minimum contamination, people can't get into the fish, and so on. Now, showing good sense is often uh, that what's really uh, necessary. That's why there's a real dedication to uh, pre-training and making sure good veterinary care of, of animals before they're used as visitation animals in, in hospitals. And while there may be some risk, there's also an incredible risk in not, especially with young people, not helping the, the child feel better about getting better, about, uh, about themselves. And sometimes you have to sort of address the, the mind as well as the body. And so we've learned to sort of develop compromises uh, that really just take advantage of what's best for the environment while minimizing dangers and also inhumane treatments of the animals. I mean, we should be very careful of how their animals are used, how often, and so on. So we've learned to, uh, and we're slowly even codifying how to best make this approach. And it's becoming more and more common. I mean, when I did studies uh, with, with fish and, and, and even birds, uh, 20 years ago, it was unheard of of having animals in, in, say, a nursing home or a psychiatric facility. Now, in, in our area, you can't find a nursing home that doesn't have some kind of animal program. Sure. Uh, and more and more hospitals have uh, fish tanks, uh, aviaries, uh, bird feeders outside. Um, so we're beginning to, you know, mature. Well, and, and Dr. Beck, that kind of leads me into an area that's intrigued me because there's a segment of the population that loves animals to such a degree that they believe that human beings ought to have nothing to do with them because they inhibit the animals, just let the, atoms be, the animals be free, whereas, frankly, everything it seems that you're doing is demonstrating, no, the, the animals... And the human beings are sort of meant to coexist with each other. What might we say to some of those people who are noble in intention, but maybe a little misguided in terms of the end result that they seek? Well, it's I mean, we are animals, too. And the truth of the matter is much of our behavior does interact with animals, whether it be pet therapy or just building a, you know, a house, which, which really takes away a lot of you know, habitat. Uh, so, I mean, we were constantly interacting uh, with, with animals, uh, and our domestication has meant that we've now have categories of animals that actually thrive in this new environment. So, yes, I, I wouldn't take a wild animal as, as, a, as a visitation because it's both dangerous and stressful. Uh, stressful for the animal, probably stressful for the people. Uh, but the truth of the matter is our dogs and cats and, and even our, our livestock have evolved. So this is their environment. They are much more, you know, uh, uh, comfortable. I mean, you know, when a zoo animal escapes, the first thing they do is open the cage and wait. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we've got to learn that, that we've, we've learned to have a relationship with nature. For the most part, we're very, very attracted to nature and, and need nature, and this is called the biophilia hypothesis. And, and what, what our domestic animals do is sort of have nature on demand. And by, you know, good breeding and, and good care, we have animals that actually thrive and are, are there only because of our uh, commitment as animal caretakers. So... Um, 
I, I can understand, but, but extremes are often not really explaining the whole issue and the reality of it. Um, so that's, you know, people have to, uh, I suppose, believe in what, what they believe in. Um, but I, I think if we do things right, uh, lots of, many, many more people could benefit, as, as will many animals. Well, we're talking this morning with Dr. Alan Beck, who is the director of the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University's Veterinary School. And Dr. Beck, we need to take another break, but when we get back from the break, I'd like to have you go through and talk a little bit about some of the very specific research that you've got going on over at the center and let the world know kind of what are the areas that you guys are studying and what kind of facts you hope will emerge as a result of your studies. And we'll continue to have that conversation with Dr. Beck right after the break on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Like us on Facebook. Go to Facebook.com forward slash MMPets. Upload your pet's picture or check out the silly pet photos that we put up there to get you through your day. Now, back to a couple of guys who thought Lassie could never really do any of that stuff anyway and that Timmy was the brains of the operation. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's 935 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we've been talking this morning with Dr. Alan Beck, who is the director at the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University's Veterinary School. And Dr. Beck, before the break, I had asked the question, could you explain some of the research that you guys at the center are specifically involved in right now? And what is the information that you're hoping to get as a result of doing the research? Oh, sure. <clears throat> Let me actually, two, there's at least two studies that use two different kinds of animals for two different kinds of reasons. So it might be good examples. One is, you know, we, we said that animals play different roles, something to talk to, to touch, to... One, many, one major role animals play is, is a focus of attention because it, it holds your attention to be with animals. And of course, the most, and that's a very important aspect for all people because if you could stay in the, in the present, uh, you're much more calm. I mean, much of stress is, is worrying about the past and worrying about the future. Um, and, but one very uh, specific uh, study we did to, to demonstrate how animals could be used very specifically was using fish tanks, standard, you know, uh, uh, goldfish uh, uh, tanks of, you know, freshwater, standard uh, fish uh, with Alzheimer's patients because people, in these are Alzheimer's uh, units inside hospitals, uh, because advanced Alzheimer's uh, residents uh, don't have a, a, a focus of attention, uh, they're very agitated, and therefore they also don't eat very well. Uh, and nothing holds uh, advanced Alzheimer's resident, uh, holds their attention well. But we found fish tanks do. So just having a, a fish tank where, in the room where, they are, where the food is being served uh, holds their attention so they, they sit in one place. It improves uh, 
behaviors, much uh, far fewer uh, negative behaviors, uh, and they and because they're sitting in, in, in more comfortable, they they eat more and and actually maintain their their weight. Uh, which also saves a lot of money for the facility because they don't have to use special supplements and so on. So there's the use of, of, of animals in, in a, taking advantage of our natural affiliation to nature because our affiliation to nature is so inborn that it even survives dementia. So that's a very simple uh, study. Uh, another study using a totally different animal, using guinea pigs in uh, in. in classrooms, uh, was to show how we could use guinea pigs to help mainstream children with autism spectrum disorder, who tended to be marginalized by the typically developing children. Um, And, you know, because young people are just, as they struggle to be what they are themselves, they're they're very impatient with others. And so the uh, autistic child and the typically developing child often do not get along very well, and it's hard to mainstream them in the same classroom. But we found that if they do something that they both truly appreciate and are committed to, uh, that is taking care of guinea pigs, uh, and not only that, but they they fall into the well-observed behavior that we tend to look at people with animals more positively, more caringly, uh, with more patience. Uh, we found that it's a very good way of improving the social behavior of the autistic child in the classroom setting, just by everybody working and just taking care of the guinea pigs, uh, whether it be you know just feeding them, cleaning them, uh, playing with them a little bit. And, of course, the guinea pigs enjoy all that. That's, that's not a problem. Um, and so there's an example of using animals in a very, again, predictable way that's good for everybody with very, very clear and, and positive outcomes. We have you know, quite a few publications out of this uh, to show that this is a, a good way. So that's, you know, typical kinds of things. And there's more and more work being done here and, and even elsewhere on how dogs and, and a little less uh, horses can be used to help alleviate uh, a, a sort of recognized problem of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is not only just for soldiers. It's actually, in fact, soldiers are uh, a minority population. It's, it's people who are victims of violence. Uh, and so we're finding that that kind of focus of attention and caring for either a dog or a horse, depending on the study, uh, has real value uh, and is a wonderful complementary part of the therapeutic medicine. Now, how accessible is this study information? I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I've loved about your you know outreach program is that you make this information accessible to others. Can you at least comment on that? That, oh, sure. that this is not just Thank you. in your mind, but also in some form of maybe PDF. Oh, absolutely! As a matter of fact, one of the one of the, the major commitments of our center and and and, and developed money from the Habri Foundation was to develop a totally free, open, co- uh, collaborative platform on human animal bond studies, uh, and and it's called HabriCentral.org, H A B R I Central, one word. 
dot uh, org because it's a nonprofit. Uh, Habri is Human Animal Bond Research Initiative. That's what the acronym comes from. And Habri Central, which is uh, funded by the Habri Foundation uh, and Purdue Libraries and Purdue University uh, Vet School, uh, is a wonderful open access uh, to much uh, of the literature, uh, both either at least getting the references, though in many cases, because we do a lot of work with the publishers, uh, actually have the whole articles available to you. There's blogging capabilities, there are all kinds of discussions, uh, there are little uh, daily or weekly briefs, which are sort of summary reviews of major topics, such as cardiovascular disease, uh, depression, uh, and those kinds of things. So HabriCentral.org is... is I think an excellent resource. It's it's utilized internationally, uh, and it's totally free. No advertising. No, no, we don't bug you for once you, and we want you to join if if you want to, so you can, you know, make better contact with each other. But it's so that's probably the the best way of, of getting the, the latest information and just learning about the whole uh, area. Interesting. Now, Doctor, one of the things that you mentioned publishing and one of the topics that I'll bring up that you've been published about lately, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with human-animal bond, but I saw in the New York Times uh, just very recently a story about the controversy in New York State when it came to cat declawing. And you had an article that was published, and you came out with a very strong opinion. Can you kind of lay out for our listeners what the argument is and kind of where your opinion came down? Sure. I, I was actually approached by the Times uh, because I think many people were concerned that they were making uh, this is a law that would make uh, any kind of declawing actually uh, a, a crime, you know, a seriously, uh, you know, punishable crime. And they asked if I'd be willing to do a little op-ed about this. And I have, you know, uh, really, uh, so I, I thought, yes, I, I knew that, there's a, there's a, that, that there is that sort of appropriate reflex that this is, you know, cruel and not, not a nice thing to do. And so I really wanted to, to have people look at two things. One, I think criminalizing it is a little odd at a time when I think there are some real activities that we do with animals that, if not criminals, should be really uh, assessed much more carefully, such as breed standards, where we breed animals that actually have shorter lives and less happy lives because of the deformities that we were expecting um, and wanted uh, to meet breed standards. Um, and then, of course, we also crop ears and, and dock tails, uh, which is actually even in, illegal in much of, of, of the European world. Um, and yet that we, we've not been addressing, and yet we address uh, uh, tail, I mean, uh, declaw. And then the other thing I, I, I wanted to at least get people to think about is that declawing, like any surgery, should be absolutely the last resort to solving a problem and should only be considered when not doing so actually causes more harm. Than, than doing so. Um, and there really are real data as opposed to just the, uh, the, the gut feelings. Of, um, for one thing, that uh, there are many people who surrender their animals uh, 
because of decline. Uh, animal, uh, cats are much more adopted from shelters if they're uh, already declawed. So it actually increases the lifespan of, of animals. Other studies have shown it does not change their behavior, biting behavior, and in fact, even their climbing behavior. And so while it is a a real discomfort for a short period of time, but so is spaying and some of the other things that we do to animals, uh, that we should at least reconsider declawing still as a last resort, uh, you know, it, where other kinds of, of behaviors, uh, behavior modifications aren't working. Uh, but at least to really realize that this this extreme response of, of actually making it a criminal behavior uh, is not necessarily in the best interest of the cat population. And that was uh, the point of, of my op-ed. And Dr. Williamson, do you have a comment on what Dr. Beck just said? Yeah, I think that this is a topic that's going to ebb and flow for a while. And, you know, I agree, Dr. Beck, that, you know, we can't just remove declawing from, you know, our part of the profession because we're going to have cats that are then put into environments and conditions that are just not, you know, better for them. It's not as, you know, healthier for them. I mean, the people are going to either turn them over to shelters, they're going to let them outdoors. Um, and I agree, it, it's something that we got to educate a cat owner as to, you know, what else can we do besides that. But I don't think we should ever have this as a, you know, an offense that somebody's going to be jailed because they're providing, you know, elective procedure like this. Yeah, and, and I think uh, your your points are well taken in regards to, you know, something superficial like a tail dock or a ear trimming. Certainly that would maybe be at least something that could raise question as to how appropriate that is but at least in this case when you actually have something that is maybe at least according to the owner of the animal you know considered necessary and it's considered necessary not because they want to do it but they want to keep the cat and they want to keep the cat part of their day-to-day -day life so well, it sounds like you've at least uh, got two converts on your side there, Dr. Beck, <laughs> so hopefully your uh, article is having more impact than that. But we need to take one more break, so we're going to do that right now. We're talking this morning with Dr. Ellen Beck, who is the director of the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University Vet School, and we'll be back right after the break on the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, back to the Pet Show duo of Rick Bruce and Lee Cohen. They both love each other as much as Tweety and Sylvester did. It's the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. We're back here with the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we've been talking this morning with Dr. Alan Beck from the Center of the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University. And, Rick, you had a question for Dr. Beck. Well, in looking at... Uh various things that you've worked on. One thing that came up is the community outreach product project that's animals in crisis and you're referring to it as the pet safe. More importantly, I think it's maybe a uh, woman or uh, people in difficult situation that are in crisis and how animals can help, but maybe they can't. And maybe the dilemma that there is, uh, you, you might give some suggestions on how we can maybe solve those problems. That'll be my pleasure. You know, there's been actually a, a, a sort of very growing awareness that since animals are so important and 
using at least metaphorically members of the family, that there should be a, a commitment to protect animals uh, when the environment is, is not safe or when the people uh, have to move or, or have to find protection from the environment. So, I mean, way back in, in I think, 2006, the, the, uh, even FEMA developed programs that, that support uh, programs that help you protect animals after a, a disaster evacuation, and, and these grants are still available. Um, so, but what was not being addressed was happens in these sort of isolated evacuations and disasters, uh, very often with sort of domestic violence, where the the family itself has to uh, leave the house for, for safety. Uh, uh, and very often, of course, while there are facilities to, to welcome uh, uh, women and their children, um, they're, not, they're not set up uh, to also have animals there. And, of course, very often uh, animal shelters and, and even area veterinarians aren't really geared to have uh, animals that they do not know, and also they don't know what the interest of the, of the perhaps uh, violent a man is involved is so they're, they're not there wasn't a, a too a good opportunity to hold the animals and we've and that we found and many people were finding that very often women would not evacuate uh, their house as early as they should have because they were worrying about their animals or would they would go back to make sure the animal is okay and therefore get in trouble uh, again from the same person uh, so what we and it's now becoming a, a more common pattern is uh, we welcome the animal in our our veterinary school, both the veterinary technicians and the vet that that have uh, enjoy volunteering to take care of the animals and, and walking them and so on, while the the women and their children can get their their lives back in, in order and then take their animals back. And uh, uh, I think Frank Asioni, who's now retired from Denver. Uh, Started it and used the expression "pet safe," and and there's actually or pet haven, uh, a way to really uh, help people who must find temporary housing, say either through violence or uh, tornadoes or fire, to take care of animals because they too have to be protected until we can bring you know remerge with, with the family, uh, because actually. Uh, family in, in crisis actually really benefits from also having uh, their animals available. So, And we've been finding, uh, we've been able to do this. Uh, uh, we actually volunteer all the veterinary care and, and so on. And uh, it, it's something that every area should have, because it has to be a local commitment. You can't stop moving animals all over the place. Right, right. So kind of uh, more or less a pilot program where people are in desperate need and uh, don't want to be separated permanently from their pets, and this is like the, the outreach to make that happen. Exactly. It's a pilot program that's been going on for 15 years. Uh, but, I think it's uh, time to tell the pilot to land, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> and make it a real program. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Dr. Beck, I can imagine that the other situations where, you know, some people that are in, you know, individual evacuation situations and can't take their pet, maybe don't want to remove themselves out of that environment and leave them in harm's way. I mean, you know, you know isn't that something we got to get a message on out to have more of these oh, pet yes, places? Fact, that's one of the major reasons that theme has changed is that, in fact, the person who's head of this program did his Ph.D. in epidemiology while he was at Purdue, uh, Sebastian Heath, and he showed that people after... Uh, 
uh, you know, from floods or gas leaks or tornadoes or hurricanes, actually, uh, very often would not want to evacuate because of their animals, or they would go back uh, to try to rescue the animal afterward and therefore putting themselves and even other risk uh, of first responders at risk. Um, and so I think that's one of the major reasons that we've realized that, that animals are part of the, the family and some reasonable mechanism has to be to uh, help them as well. Um, what we usually see in the news is like, oh, by the way, there's nothing out there to support these animals, so we've got to take all these extra efforts to try to figure out how to save the animals, or we couldn't save the animals because there was nothing in the in the works to figure out how to do that, so the animals perished. Uh, that That's what it seems like as the listening audience on the news after these big events like Katrina. Right, and, and big organizations go in, and what happens is these animals are, are rescued, but then they're, they're transferred outside of the, of the environment, and so the families don't get really reunited. Mm. It's very unfair. Uh, and that's what I was saying about this, this program. If there's a, a, a local shelter or, or program that's willing to, to take on the responsibility of doing this, they can get grants from FEMA to work out some of the, the at least the economic costs. So kind of sign up for having already ready individuals that are willing to be part of a foster program. Sure. Gotcha. And you're doing it through the university and students, but have you been able to reach that out to places other than students, or do you have others that are non-students? Again, because I think it has to be local. We did about two uh, two years now. Uh, we had a, a, a one-day conference for all the area responders, from FEMA to the age, uh, agency for the aging and all the, the YWCA types, all the areas, to tell them about these kind of programs and to try to develop a better coordination which has happened slightly. It, it is. Everybody's just so busy, but it's actually getting slightly better. So we had this this area conference, and that's where I think it has to be, uh, because it's the only way it really works. Well, you I think don't that want animals outside the neighborhood. Well, something for the uh, future. Uh, looking, sure. this is the first of the year, and uh, I think that uh, maybe this year we can at least see what we have as that fabric here in Lansing. And uh, maybe try to make sure we communicate what it is. And if there needs to be some improvements, uh, maybe we uh, figure out how to make that happen. So That would be great. Now, does and, that and start with, um, like, a local, you know, animal shelter, humane society? Or have you found uh, to get those things up and running? Um, you know, what organization have you found gets to be the, the one that, you know, takes that by the wheels and said, let's get this going? In, in our area, it actually is the YWCA that is the women's shelter um, that's been our, our, our most active. Uh, and then with, with cooperation, obviously, from, from uh, the local humane society uh, where they can uh, help. But, of course, we can actually house our animals ourselves, having a, you know, a veterinary school, which you could almost do where you are, too. Well, it sounds but different like, areas might have different you know, needs. It sounds like that's something we will have to explore. But, Dr. Beck, I'm afraid to say we are out of time. So we want to thank you for coming on. We've been speaking with Dr. Ellen Beck, the director of the Center for the Human-Animal Bond. And, Rick, we are just out of time. So on behalf of our producer, Andy Warnock, and my co-host in the studio, Rick Pruse. 
and Dr. Mark Williamson. This is Lee Cohen wishing all of you a great new year. We'll talk with you next week for the beginning of our seventh year on the air. I are on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. Have a great weekend, everybody. A great week. And please, please take good care of your pets.